Horror Movie on Netflix, the podcast where we watch, review, and discuss every horror movie on Netflix. I'm Steven. I'm here as always with my friends and co-hosts, Chris. Hi. And Patrick. Hello. And we have a very special guest today who I cannot believe has not been on the show before, our good friend Andrew. Say hi, Andrew. Hey, hey everybody. Hey, you want to you wanna tell us just a little bit about yourself before we get started? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am a professional uh, journalist with JTA, um, longtime friend of Patrick and fan of the show. Um, and I am also a podcaster. I have a podcast called Radioactive, the Father Coughlin story, um, which is sort of horror-y, although it's really <laughs> a, a historical horror tale. Um, but I encourage people to check it out if they are at all interested in um, 1930s fascist radio. Um that is a it's a deep dive into, into that particular area, and then I've also been um, a film critic for a number of years, uh, most prominently for NPR. Awesome! Oh. And I think I think we can definitely drop a drop a note about your podcast about Father Coughlin in the show notes. Um, I know at least a couple of our fans that would be interested in that, just off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Uh, so you've 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 done some work as a film critic. Is horror a special genre to you? Is it something you tend to gravitate toward? I would say, actually, I think Patrick, more than anyone, has helped me get into the various fineries of the horror genre, which Aww. had never had never really been something like it wasn't something I grew up really immersed in. But uh, but over time, I've like been been dipping my toes more into the horror waters. And um, also just being from the Detroit area, I do have a few connections to Sam Raimi. So I'm like especially excited that we're you know delving into the Raimi verse here. Um, but like, well, we should have got him on the show. What the hell? What are we doing with <laughs> well, Andrew? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say when I say connections to him, I don't mean I, I like I don't know him, but I did get to interview Bruce Campbell in college for my college paper, which was really cool. Um, and I also went to school, like elementary school, with the daughter of um, Ellen Sandweiss, who was in The Evil Dead. And has been, my understanding, a longtime friend of both uh, both Ramey and Campbell, um, and sort of a, sque- a scream queen figure. Um, so I would say, you know, love the man, uh, love what he's done for the Detroit horror scene, um, and uh, and 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 that's and that's why I'm like really excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you, and uh, as as everyone's figured out now, well, by the time you queue up this episode, we're here today to talk about Sam Ramey's. 2009 return to horror comedy uh, uh, fame or whatever you want to call it. Drag me to hell. But before we get into it, we'd like to do a little catch-up. This one's going to be tricky because I know Patrick and Andrew and I have a thing. Mm. And Patrick and Chris and I have a thing that I think we should probably talk about at least a little bit. So we'll Let's we'll, talk about our things. Let's talk about our things. We'll see how it goes. Um, Chris, what have you been up to, buddy? Horror or otherwise? What you've been watching, reading, listening to, playing... Well, I rewatched Black Swan. Oh, that's I, right. I, watched, Ooh. I watched Black Swan, you know, like 10 years ago or something, and then I just rewatched it, and I liked it the first time. I loved it the second time. Um, it's well, the a second movie... time is a date, right? The first time's a flirt. Is that your rule? 
Yes. Okay. Yes. That's okay. the. I didn't say that. Someone. Someone. Someone else said that. Um. But I. Uh, I, I. I subscribe to that, and especially in a movie like Black Swan, where, um, I don't know. There's so much stuff going on on a thematic level. It, it helps a lot in that movie to know where it's gonna end up. Um. To appreciate it on a scene-to-scene basis even though if you've seen it before they tell you where it's gonna end up at the beginning the director comes out and he's like "Uh, we all know the story of the black swan eh she grows she does this blah 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 she dies (laughs) it's all there (laughs) it's like okay um but had a great time with that Uh, if you haven't seen that watch it very very good movie uh, that's all I've done really in the horror space. Um, but as Steven alluded, uh, the three of us and a couple of our other friends went and saw James Cameron's The Abyss at the largest movie screen in Michigan <laughs> for the uh, 4K one night only exhibition in advance of the 4K Blu-ray release that we've been waiting on for years and years. Um, and it was Patrick's first time seeing James Cameron's The Abyss. It uh, was. And I think you liked it. I did, mostly. The The part that I didn't like was the entire ending that James Cameron... And James Cameron's originally intended ending. The only thing I disliked about it was James Cameron's pure artistic vision for the ending of his own film. <laughs> but up to that point, I was having a great time. It's very claustrophobic, very atmospheric um ed harris is tremendous um and the you know i like the the little dash of alien spooky maybe angel horror energy as well so yeah i had a great time with it up to the last 20 minutes or so i really enjoyed myself too i i hadn't seen the abyss since i was a kid i remember just a few select images from it and man for the first couple i mean because this was this cut the special edition is about just under three hours the first two hours are so so tense. This thing really moves, and it, like Patrick said, it's claustrophobic. It's just almost every shot. I was wondering, like, how how was he? How was James Cameron able to achieve this? How was he able to get actors to go along with this? Like, not only is it you know a, a masterpiece of spectacle, but it was dangerous, very dangerous to make. Um, so yeah, I, I feel I feel honored to have seen it in this setting. However, yeah, the last. 35, 40 minutes of it were pretty cringy. Um, not only because of some of the upscaled special effects, but, you know, Cameron is really just hitting you over the head with his environmental message and everything, uh, which I admire. I admire. I agree with. I think he and I are, you know, politically probably very similar, uh, but it was just a little too too much for me, a little too Disney or something. Well, like, <laughs> well, uh, well. It's the opposite of what you'd get with Disney, because the thing I like about James Cameron and the abyss is, yes, this stuff is cringe. Yes, he lays it on thick. Yes, it's like overly corny at some points. All of his movies are corny in spots, but it's because he's chasing like he's not afraid to go there and try to like just wear his heart on his sleeve and be sincere about something. And movies these days, blockbusters especially, are just so scared to 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 put to extend a limb because what if we're corny? What if we're cringe? Oh, we had that emotional scene, well we better undercut it with a one-liner to know that we're not taking it too seriously. And uh Cameron doesn't do that, and I like that. Yeah, that's that's a fair assessment. 
Oh, I'm very jealous. I have not seen The Abyss, but this sounds like the ideal setting in which to see it. Well, come over in a few months when I have the 4K Blu-ray, and we'll watch it on the largest screen on my road. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you had the largest movie screen in Michigan, like personally. No, no. Like if this was a home viewing. Not quite. Patrick, what have you been up to other than seeing The Abyss on the biggest screen in Michigan? You know, not a lot of uh, strictly horror, so I, I feel like it might be a good moment to kind of talk about our thing, my my Andrew and Steven's thing, which is we all uh, caught up to Todd Haynes' new flick, also on Netflix, so germane to the podcast, May, December. Um, certainly not horror necessarily, but mm, horror adjacent. It's definitely got some, some creepy and unsettling vibes. I mean, um, you know it's right in the I, middle of May and December. October. <laughs> True. Oh, there you it's, go. It's often scored like a horror film, even when Julianne yeah. was just looking for hot dogs in the fridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It's got uh, Haynes' usual um, kind of balance of just absolutely masterful filmmaking, direction, acting with that little uh, heaping, yeah, actually not little, a heaping helping of, of camp and soap to go along with it. And uh, I found it a pretty damning statement on artists, our uh, sort of um, perverted fascination with uh, sordid crime stories. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Absolutely loved it. This is, I think, my favorite movie of the year. And I had been oh, doing nice. some some cramming over the last few weeks for um, the critics bout that I'm in. And May, December just kept flinging up to the top of the list. I think it uses the filmmaking techniques of horror. There's definitely some like some construction of horror in there. But there's also camp, there's soap opera, and it's all being done basically to really undercut the viewer uh, and present this really horrific story. <laughs> the real life rip from the headlines story of child abuse. Um, and presented to us in a way that acknowledges that we're going to be fascinated by it because it's so lurid and it's so um, grotesque and we're, you know, and we want to know every detail, you know, just like Natalie Portman's character does in the movie. And, uh, and that creates this really gripping, but also like shocking kind of push pull that you have as a viewer, your relationship to, to the movie. It never stops. Yeah, and, and in the end, like, Haynes doesn't leave himself and his team out of uh, sort of the, the incrimination of that uh, I interest in this subject matter, which I really appreciated. It's not just like, look at you, you're a freak for being interested in this, but yeah, me and, me and my kind are too, essentially, was what I took from that ending. Yeah, hundred percent. I I just I adore this movie. I look forward to watching it again as, as soon as possible. I I hear a lot of talk about the camp in it, and yeah, I did I did key into some of that. But for me, the, I found the movie to be overwhelmingly sad. Oh um, yeah, it, it overwhelmingly even kind of kind of depressing. There's just some interesting displays of of humanity going on here that I don't know if I've ever seen presented through this specific lens. Um. That said, though, <laughs> without any spoilers, uh, the, the horror 
adjacentness of it really got to me too. I mean, Julia Moore's final line in this movie literally gave me like chills. I sat up in my seat um, in a way that I hadn't for any straight up horror movie I'd seen this entire year. Hmm. Andrew, anything else you want to plug that you've watched or read or experienced recently? I did just watch, uh, not to be a total downer, but um, maybe my other favorite movie of the year was uh, Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. Dying to see it. Dying to see that. Yeah, I'll say this. As someone who has spent a good portion of my professional life writing about, thinking about Jewish issues, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and Holocaust memory, Mm -hmm. and considering that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 Holocaust movies that have been made, like, total which is just like way too many. Nobody should ever, <laughs> nobody should ever feel like they have to watch all of those. I have an idea for but, a podcast for you. Not to I, I, I'm <laughs> sure not. <laughs> Our next spinoff. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, so out of this, that entire corpus, right, of mm-hmm. like, again, lurid fascination with the subject matter, this is the first time that I have seen that got Nazis right, that like correctly sort of diagnosed the psychology of that era and the psychology of like the oppressor for lack of a better term and the the banality of it the benignness by which this movie portrays these truly evil people just going about their lives utterly unmoved and not caring at all about the fates of an entire race of people that they are burning alive across the street was so moving and in a way weirdly validating for for me anyway to 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 see this to see that 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 this this sort of bold modern reinterpretation of of like a story that we've all read about in history class you know finally had something worth saying about this time period and especially aided by Michael Levy's fantastic score I can't wait for you guys to hear it it is terrifying it really like out of all the things in that movie the musical score is probably what got under my skin the most. Um, so that's been on my mind a lot, the zone of interest. I'm excited for more people to see it and, and debate it. Sounds like a cheerful time. Maybe we can see it on the biggest screen in Michigan, boys. <laughs> um, no, I'm dying. Jonathan Glazer, I mean, he, he makes a movie once every like 15 years and it just blows the state of cinema out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple of really quick things. I've still been watching uh, Nathan Fielder, Benny Safdie, and Emma Stone's series, The Curse. I believe it is halfway through now. It is so hard to talk about. So I will just say uh, it continues to be a living fucking nightmare. <laughs> it has not fully transpired into horror, uh, at, at least of the, the corporeal kind, but it is very psychologically uh, taxing and horrifying. Um, and then a quick plug for, for my book club over on the Amon Discord. Uh, just last night, uh, as we're recording this, um, I met up with a couple of lovely folks to talk about Chuck Tingle's book, Camp Damascus. It was a really fun, illuminating discussion. That guy's really going places uh, as if he hadn't been already. And next, we are going to probably be reading a short story collection, something we haven't done before, but I'll make an announcement in the Stevens Book Club uh, Discord thread soon here. So that brings us at long last to the topic at hand. Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. This is a movie about a, a young woman, a loan officer. She's trying to get a promotion at her job, trying to be ruthless, even though it's not her nature. And she denies an older, uh, very, very creepy looking woman a third extension on her home loan. 
hoping that she can impress her boss and she gets cursed. She may or may not get dragged to hell. Who knows? That's <laughs> what they decide to call the movie. So uh, you decide. Uh, what is everyone's relationship with this film? Did we all see this uh, previously? Maybe even back when it first came out? I know I did. Because Sam Raimi was my hero in yes. 2009. <laughs> oh, I saw it in the theater for sure. Seen it, I think, another time or two since then, actually. I saw it on DVD when I had the Hollywood Video <laughs> Unlimited Pass. Uh, probably shortly after it was available on DVD. Watched it once. And haven't really thought much about it since, and I just watched it again for the second time. <laughs> are you t- are you subtly tipping your hand there? Chris? I, I might be. We'll we'll see if it if it hit me a stronger way this time. But yeah, um, I saw this film on DVD probably shortly after it came out on DVD, um, and really liked it. This w- this was also only my second time seeing it, but. I think it, it stuck with me a bit more maybe than it stuck with Chris. Um, certainly the ending, which we'll talk about, but um, that's been that's been burned into my brain forever. So it's 2009, I'm I'm like, where was I at in my headspace? Um, had Spider-Man three come out by that point? Yes. Is this post yes. Spider? Yeah. So Sam Raimi, of course, had made you know the Evil Dead movies, um, Army of Darkness, and it kind of quickly started to become sort of a prestige filmmaker mostly thrillers I and mean, he did a simple plan uh the quick and the dead which i actually still haven't seen uh dark man a great film but then he got kind of sucked into making these big budget superhero movies the first two of which are amazing and i think still hold up very well but i was you know he would lit he would drop little references to his his uh kind of low budget upbringing into those films and i just kind of wanted him to pull back a bit and instead of having bruce campbell in your movie for two seconds like make a movie that would make sense for him to actually play a fully realized character in and so sure enough the news was announced that he was going to kind of go back to his roots make a lower budget film that was a straight up horror comedy and i could not have been more pleased with the results at the time um this thing it it moves it's gross it's got that kind of quick editing and really smart shot construction that that you know he's known for even in the spider-man movies but that in this to me he called back you know closer to to evil dead it's a smaller scale um what are y'all's initial impressions of revisiting this thing yeah i mean it, it certainly was sort of shocking at the time because as you said he became a blockbuster filmmaker the spider-man that whole trilogy i, I still rules i will defend even fucking spider-man 3 all day long but that's a separate discussion um and it was surprising at the time to see him go back to this and it's almost more surprising looking back at it now because he hasn't really gone here again like no he just descended no. even further into like tim burton just boring ass blockbuster shit the closest he's gotten to doing something cool along those lines again is the doctor strange movie that came out a year or two ago which is is plenty of fun in places but it, to, you know, Marvel kind of does its usual thing and waters down uh, his vision. It's interesting because, like, in the 15 years since Drag Me to Hell, like, what has his output been? He did, like, that Wizard yeah. of Oz remake, yeah. which I, I didn't bother to see, even though it was all filmed. Oh, here. I was obligated to see it, and it was not good. Oh, no. Uh, and he did, like, the Evil Dead TV show, right? And then Doctor Strange. And isn't that kind of it? 
Uh, he's made enough films. He's, I mean, what more do you want from the guy? He, he's, <laughs> he's done. done it all. He's done what it all. What else does he need to do? He did a Marvel movie. Now he can say he's done it all. <laughs> and here's, I, I never really, I, I'm not, the, the Evil Dead stuff is not really my cup of tea. Um, and I don't know, sort of like, I don't know, Lady Gaga. I think Sam Raimi's at his best when his impulses are being tempered by more commercial demands. Oh, and interesting. So, like, I watched The Evil Dead, and I'm like, all right, like, it's it's cute. And certainly, again, like, you know, we talked last episode about the, the Mount Rushmore independent film and stuff. Uh, I don't know if Sam Raimi's on it, but but certainly going out into the woods of, you know, I think it was Tennessee – with his Michigan friends and making that movie with like a gallon of corn syrup and a camera uh, <laughs> is, is pretty cool. But I just don't need to see people. I just don't need to see that much fluid in a movie. Uh, the, the crazy putting the camera on the skateboard doesn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, I get it. It's fun. It's fine. But you're going to have to bring more than that to the table to really get me excited about your movie. Drag me to hell this time. I'm going to say I was bored a lot because there's some great gags, but it's a lot of the fluid. It's a lot of the screaming. It's a lot of the, you know, person walking around the house in the dark in so many words. I need a little more. I don't have a problem with fluids. I'll say that. I don't have a problem with the fluids. <laughs> Give me the fluids. Yeah, I was bored when there weren't fluids. <laughs> like the, the, earlier part, the earlier parts of this movie where it's just a lot of like wind blowing around. I was like, okay, come on, let's get to the like bile coming out of the, <laughs> the corpse. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed to hear that anybody could be bored for a second of this. I feel like this movie moves so so fast and hard. I agree. Um, but, but with the Evil Dead movies, I mean, I have a complicated relationship with them. I want to chime in on this because they were super important to me right around 6th, 7th grade. Um, I wanted to be a filmmaker, and they're definitely kind of film bro movies. You know, they're 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 made for almost no money by some some local fellas. Um, but I love the boy that I was that loved those movies more than I love those movies now as an adult. If that makes sense, like I don't see myself even really watching Evil Dead two possibly ever again. Um, it, it did what it needed to do for me at that age, and I have a fondness for how it affected me. But yeah, just. Uh, not my thing anymore. That's kind of how I feel about his Spider-Man movies. Like I still mm. like them. I still like them, but I loved them when they came out and I watched, you know, I watched them like when I was in college or something, like still young but a little bit older and like it just did it wasn't the same. And I know that when I go back to them, it's just going to be even less the same. Um and so I, I kind of have nostalgia for like that part of my adolescence and really connecting to all the angst in those movies um, more so than I like the movies themselves at this point, probably. I still rewatch those movies all the time. I just rewatched the first one like a month ago from your, your box set, Chris, your blue box set of mm-hmm. the trilogy that mm-hmm. I bought from you for 10 bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hell of a deal. I didn't know what I had. <laughs> it's funny to hear that. I feel like, um, you know, I'm someone who believes that Sam Raimi is basically the grandfather of like the modern superhero movie by virtue of the Spider-Man trilogy. Right. That that sort of kooky kinetic sensibility that he brought to it where after after he kind of left the game, it just leaned really hard into that. And like gradually over the next 
20 years bled out the more individuated sense of personality that he brought to this material until all that was left, I think, was that broad sense of nostalgia for just whatever whatever kind of kid you were when you first learned about Thor or the Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that, right? And so it's interesting looking at like where it's how you situate this film in his chronology because as we said, this was like back to basics for him, right? He had decided he was like tired of of this of the triple digit budget um you know films, uh you know, the 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 Spider-Man's and he wanted to do something that was more that was more raw, that was more like uh you know specific to him and everybody else just went in the complete other direction and said no i'll i'll take the giant budget i'll take the green screen i'll take uh you know i'll take everything that you left behind and we're just gonna make we're just gonna make product now um and uh and and so it's it's sort of bittersweet when i look at when i look at like his trajectory and what he brought to the genre and what you know what it moved on to without him I, I still really uh, on this viewing. I still really enjoyed so many sequences in this movie that like were uh, simultaneously refreshing and kind of like made me a little bit depressed because again he's not returned to this kind of filmmaking. But um, a, a major highlight is early on in the film. You know, after after um, Alison Lohman's character is is cursed uh, by this Romani woman after you know denying her the extension of her home loan, she meets this woman in a parking garage and this is just like one of the most deliriously balls out <laughs> two-person action action sequences i've i've maybe ever seen in a movie as these two are are tussling in the car alice loma is crashing into other cars there's staples to the head and to the eyeball there's teeth being knocked out on a dashboard it's just so Ah, it's so it's it's like a Looney Tune. There's a close so up fun. of a staple flying back out of an eyeball as the car yes. is about to crash from the momentum. <laughs> and it's not to say that he didn't have that attention to to detail and to even gory detail in the Spider-Man movies. I mean, I think of the 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 uh, the scene where Doc Ock kills all the like medical staff mm. in Spider-Man Two. Is it like has a little bit of this energy? But man, like it was so fun. I hadn't seen this movie in years. It was so fun to see him. Like I could just see him laughing behind the camera yeah. and having just a blast. Um, <laughs> and it's that classic Sam Raimi energy where like it's it's a lot of quick, tight, very well constructed shots edited edited together seamlessly to make you feel like this movie is punching you in the nose yeah. at times. Yeah, and I, I just delighted in it. This is also Allison Lohman's final movie role before her retirement. Oh, yeah, she retired. Yeah, she's just raising her kids now. Yeah. Oh well, that's wow. good for her. Wonder, wonder what about this movie would have turned her off to acting. <laughs> I think she wanted to go out on top. <laughs> there we go. So, so, so let me let me get a little let me let me press you here because on our last episode we reviewed Kevin Smith's Tusk, and a movie I thought was very mm. funny. A movie you two guys, Patrick and Stephen, Andrew wasn't here. I don't know what he thinks about Tusk, but the the, the horses left the barn on that. Um, <laughs> You guys were very put off by what you described as, you know, Kevin Smith's bro humor, where everything feels like a joke that he's telling, etc. And I kind of, I, I feel like there's a double standard here. I feel like we're coming into these movies with preconceptions about the directors, and we're giving one guy benefit of the doubt, and we're not giving the other guy benefit of the doubt. Because I don't, th when, when there's a woman where, Stephen called her a Romani woman, which it's... 
she is a stereotype. Oh, absolutely. Type of Eastern Europe. It doesn't even feel appropriate to say Romani because she does not reflect an ethnic group. And I think she <laughs> speaks in Hungarian, but I'm like, I don't know what to call her because she's clearly meant to be a stereotype. She's meant to but be the word okay. we don't say anymore. She's the word yeah. we don't say anymore, but she yeah. is like the most foul stereotype you could ever imagine of this type of person. And she's like got a glass eye and her teeth are coming out and she's like drooling all over the desk of a bank where she's begging for a loan and this is all played for comedy and i don't understand why that's less like obnoxious or broy than uh you know the joke about the kill bill kid killing himself in tusk defend your takes <laughs> um i mean uh, so that is an aspect of this that i i kind of had to grapple with this time through and i really don't even know how to talk about it and i'm not saying i thought that anything about this character was like hilarious the action is amazing but i think it's a little bit lazy yeah to have a i mean i'll just say the word because in 2009 i'm sure the press materials called her a gypsy i mean that's what they're that's what it's they say that in the movie numerous times and and she's and she's no less complicated than that but also this is this is clearly just such a such a comical sketch of a horror movie that i feel like it's able to get away with it and go for the gross out factor which i'm sure works like gangbusters on teenagers or did at the time. What's also funny about the stereotype conversation is that you also have in this movie um, an Eastern mystic of, of Indian descent yes. who, who um, meets with a, like a Latina, like spiritual Santeria person. And they somehow both know how to deal with a Hungarian, yeah. <laughs> which is curse. Yeah. Uh, so there's like this, you know, it's like, there's a multi, there's like, if you want to be generous, you could call it like a multiculturalist theory of dark magic. Um, uh-huh. but there are other words that might apply to. Yeah. I, I, my, my take was that I think Sam Raimi was having fun with, um, with, with, um, superstition and religion in a way that like, I don't think you could get away with in a mainstream movie today. And I'm not saying it's all okay in 2009 either. Um, and we should note that one of those characters' names is Ram Joss, by the way. I don't know if anybody <laughs> groaned harder than I did hearing that this time around. I don't know, Chris. Do you feel takes have been defended? I don't know if I have a defense here. Hey, that's that's good enough. I don't, I don't need to. I don't need to. <laughs> well, I think those are kind of two separate conversations, though, because I mean, we weren't really uh, criticizing Tusk on the basis of cultural uh, portrayals, which this movie certainly <laughs> does not. Sp- pass the smell test on i don't think anybody here is going to say yeah this is a great depiction of uh romani no. people or or uh southern uh asian people or anything sure we can call that out what is yeah i'm not sure what you're asking to be defended here i just thought that if kevin smith made this movie you would easily say that this is douchey bro humor in some of the way that these scenes play out and some of these characters. Well, it depends on the craft. And I didn't find there to be a lot of craft to Tusk and Tusk. Exactly. Was, but also, and again, obviously matter of opinion, different strokes. I found Tusk boring as shit, but you found this boring as shit. So I mean, I, whatever, not just boring different, shit. different, not, different not tastes, I guess. Well, I, was, I wanted to say quickly though, I think, I think this comes down to, I th- it's interesting. Um, and I wish I had like more sort of eloquent answers for your, your line of questioning, Chris, but 
I want to say it comes down to sensibilities, but I also don't want to say that my sensibility is the way that um, certain stereotypes are played with in the in this film, um, and 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 even further exaggerated. Uh, but it was a hell of to me. It was this movie moved much more elegantly than Tusk. Well, and also I think you have a lead character who's actually compelling. Like I never gave a shit about what was going on with. Uh don't know what the fuck his name was at this point in Tusk. Justin Wallace. Long. Justin Long basically plays Wallace in this movie too, as he plays Justin Long in every single thing he's in. But I mean, there's actually like a compelling kind of push pull in the, uh, you know, the, the ostensible one bad decision that this character makes, you know, the Raimi said they wanted to tell a story about a character who is otherwise moral, but makes a, in their words, sinful decision um, and the consequences of that. And that's a compelling story, even within, you know, kind of the the silliness and outrageousness of everything that's going on here. It's still a character I can hang my hat on as opposed to Tusk, where it's just like this douchebag podcaster who you hate from square one and hate through the whole movie. And, you know, what do you what do you do with that? But we don't but we don't need to relitigate Tusk so yeah, soon. No, no, no. <laughs> I was going to say, wasn't Tusk just like uh like a didn't it start as like a joke yeah. on his podcast oh yeah so there wasn't there, there was not a lot of like underlying uh you know thought to that movie uh whereas whereas here you know and this is this is not really like you can't really credit Ramey for this this is more the circumstances in which it came out but 2009 you know it's the aftermath of the subprime yeah. mortgage crisis yeah. and this movie is so adept at um picking up on those themes and running with it where the the whole thing pivots around like a bank denying a loan to a low income person and then having you know having her house repossessed and the you know and it sort of asks a lot of you know thorny moral questions in its way um in its ridiculous over the top b movie way about what does it mean to be a good person when you are working for you know this this larger financial capitalist system that exploits and take advantage takes advantage of people and all you're doing is just trying to get ahead uh i mean this is sort of like a classic like what would you do in this situation kind of horror movie it's a morality right? play i mean it, it's a morality yeah exactly and like if i was in allison loman's shoes i probably would have made the same initial decision as her and then i don't know how i would have gotten out of this like three-day curse <laughs> timeline i would have been terrified of like they're would have just been um you know no way out for me so i i i could yeah relate to her dilemma more certainly i think the the structure of the story um <clears throat> opens itself up to like you get more and more inside her head her her sense of panic and paranoia as the deadline is ticking down which also makes this a really interesting uh you know gripping narrative um and and you yeah you have some of that over the top viscosity which i guess you have to either get on board with or not <laughs> viscosity. <laughs> yeah work. so i didn't really connect to her all that much i i mean I, I i think she's likable relatable sure um but that often comes across like in a very like this felt like a disney movie to me because like they would show you something with subtext like her looking at the empty bank manager desk and then they'd tell you like by the way that promotion's coming up you still want that right <laughs> you know they do things like that to kind of really drill drill her motivations home and then here's the thing like they set her up, they show this sin, they show the industry she works in, Her, she denies this loan, she basically evicts this old, frail woman. 
Um, and we're supposed to sympathize with her, and I think we do, but only to a point, because the selling point of this movie and the t- entertainment is the titillation of her eating maggots and, like, you know, <laughs> fighting, you know, getting horribly, having horrible cursed things happen to her. And there's really not a lot of interiority to her character for most of the movie. For example, spoiler alert, she kills her pet cat and it's a punchline and it's not mm-hmm. really revisited and she doesn't really uh dwell she doesn't really you know there's not a lot of interior conflict oh, oh it's it's that. revisited sure it's revisited <laughs> but again it's a punchline like she's not really a she's a cartoon character for most of this movie at the end we do get a little more of her like internal quarrels and stuff but this movie's about her eating mud sucking oh, yeah. shit Tasting maggot, it's, getting it's, it's all a sorts of things put in her nose and mouth, um, you know, and, and and so to say, oh, this is such a great character. Eh, I, I, I disagree. nobody said it's a great character. It's just a compelling character. And, I'm, and when I'm comparing to Wallace the fucking Walrus in Tusk, which is to my <laughs> mind the bottom of the fucking character barrel, yeah, sure, this is a great character. In any other right. context, I don't think I'd describe it as a great character, but it was at least there's at least a hook there. I understood who this was there was some kind of uh, uh conflict for the character that i related to and that drew me into the story that was i think that was a jumping off point for this this movie is a cartoon and either you're on its wavelength and you can enjoy it or you can't and i'm not gonna blame you either way <laughs> i do want to issue a correction maybe this will this will help sort of like def- deflate the tension here um <laughs> i think andrew you said this was the last movie she made before she retired allison loman i thought so am i wrong about so that? she actually that was 2009 2015 she returns to Hollywood. Oh yes, to play psych <laughs> patient in the Vatican tapes. <laughs> the Vatican tapes. A great film. She's married to Mark Nevelbeen, okay. director. Right. director has... of the great film Crank High Voltage. <laughs> right, I think she she returned. She returned to have a few bit parts, like specifically in her husband's movies, right? Yeah, which was just um, hilarious to me looking yeah. at her list right now because that movie <laughs> looms large over the show. Chris owns it on Blu-ray. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no animal. He wasn't going to buy that. You, you come over and watch that one too. We'll watch the Abyss, and then we'll watch the Vatican tapes. <laughs> I appreciate her in this movie because I think I had read that like she was absolutely not a fan of horror movies when she like accepted this role. And so, first of all, it's like brave, brave of her to take on the, this like the most horrory of horror movies and to do some of the themes. You know, some of the scenes that she's like asked to do here are just absolutely disgusting. And she just kind of throws herself into it with gusto. And I think the fact that she is probably like very privately repulsed by the whole thing um kind of shows up in her performance oh, yeah. and, and you know and that's also that's also uh that's also part of it i feel like a good sam raimi movie has a protagonist who is just kind of like really disgusted by the stuff coming out of their bodies or being thrown at their bodies it's a great physical comedy performance, I think. She's like, I, I, oh man, I wish she had really done more since this movie because I don't even know what else I know her from. Oh, I guess she was in Big Fish. I was a Tim oh, yeah. fan at one point. All right, I, I, so so here's here's your movie. The, the rest of the movie, she's trying to get rid of this curse. A lot of gross things happen. Lots of twists and turns. Lots of uh, interesting attempts to use different forms of spirituality to deal with this this woman and, and the curse she's inflicted on Alison Lohman. Um, 
Justin Long is trying to trying to be along for the ride, trying to be a sweet boyfriend, but he's also got asshole parents, and there's a big dinner coming up. I don't know if there's anything else we need to talk about before we get to the spoiler room is what I'm saying here, you guys. I think we should review it while tensions are high because it'll be a little more interesting maybe. <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's not that plotty. It's it's you know, not. She gets it's cursed. Not. Um the 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 woman, the old woman dies early. Yes. On. So there's no there's no avenue to having her lift the curse or anything like that. She's basically just cursed. She has to deal with it and it's all icky well, sticky. We should say that there is, like the tension of the movie is around the rules of the curse and how and whether she would be able to to break them. So the rule is like because the old woman has taken a bit of her clothing and you know curses her then from that point on the clock is ticking and she has three days to as i understand it like transfer ownership of this like button from her coat that has been cursed um or she can sacrifice a goat and if she fails to do either of those things she will be dragged to hell like they, they're like they're like they tell you that in the early part of the movie. The opening scene, and, yes, we do see a yeah. young boy get dragged to hell for stealing uh, a piece of clothing from a, from a Romani woman. I don't know what how they refer to her, but it's kind of the same sort of stereotypical shit that we oh. that we don't talk about anymore um, in that in that insensitive way. Um, but that's kind of an awesome opening too, though. I mean, for your movie to be called Drag Me to Hell and to begin with oh, a yeah. child of all things, oh, yeah. Drag Me to Hell. And and it, it's like three minutes, like that intro. Yeah. It, it just boom, boom, boom. It just roars. Well, and it, all, and roars it gives along. me one of my favorite like horror movie tropes of all time, which is the smash cut to uh, an opening title with a good like mm-hmm. screechy musical cue. It's very insidious. It's very, very James Wan. Yeah, yeah, very James Wan. And yeah, I had a big smile on my face for that. Would you view it, cue it, or screw it, Steven? I give this my highest view it. I think this movie's a fucking banger. Like, (laughs) I had so much fun just watching this by myself. I hadn't seen it in, I don't know, at least five years. Yeah, it's stupid. Yes, it's cartoony. Yes, certain elements of it probably didn't even hold up well to, you know, uh, social scrutiny at the time. But I, 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 I had a smile on my face the whole time. It's got big Halloween energy. Even when, like, the jokes don't land you know usually the jokes involving uh viscosity is interesting <laughs> um, i still i still admired that like a movie like this came out alongside what i have to assume are like a bunch of done dumb teen horror movies at the time and here's a movie that's made by someone who's something of a master of putting these things together and and reviving a vision of horror comedy that had rarely been seen before and i don't think has really been done this well since I just love this movie. I know I'm glad I have the Scream Factory Blu-ray right now. I'm going to watch it every year without fail. So view it. Patrick. Oh, big view it for me too. It's it's great entertainment, exceedingly well made. I think uh, you know, Chris mentioned uh directors and how you may have prejudice against various directors and I I, I don't think I really bring that to this. I, you know, just saw Andrew and I just saw a movie by Eli Roth who I fucking hate otherwise. And it was a banger, you know, I'm always open to different directors takes, but the point I'm getting to is, um, I still, I think Sam Raimi absolutely elevates this. Um, I think, uh, Eli Roth or for that matter, Kevin Smith could make this movie. And I don't think it would 
uh, just rock the way it does. It just clips along. Uh, it has that kinetic energy to it that is just impossible for me to resist. And it's got a lot of gross out stuff, but it does it so well and uh, in, in such an over-the-top way that even if that's not your thing, um, which it is mine when it's done well, um, I think you still have to just uh, respect the respect the craft here. I had a great time with it. Chris? I'm going to give it a cue it. I think a low cue it. I didn't love this movie. It has some great moments. It's got some really good gags, but I would say there's a good gag every 10 or 15 minutes or so, like a really good, like, Oh, that was a cool effect. Oh, that was a cool stunt, etc. The rest of it, there's, there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about where it's just like, Oh, CGI shadow on the wall. Oh, CGI fly buzzing around. Oh, it's the wind. Oh, it's, we're walking through a house interminable stuff and gags that just aren't that good overuse of cgi on some of these uh gags and, and gross out moments that's I'm i'll not agree grossed, with you there i'm not grossed out when like someone's getting mud spat in their face and it's like you can see the like the hard edges of the after effects thing on their face um you know just not not consistent enough with the gross out stuff which wouldn't be a problem except this movie's such a one trick pony that's what you're here for you're here for the weird crazy gross silly uh boogeyman stuff and it's batting like 30 percent at best you can't really get into the characters the plot is so thin and it moves it is scene to scene the plot does not progress she's just cursed in every scene and not a lot is changing oh now she goes to the boyfriend's house do we really care what happens at the boyfriend's house it doesn't really matter she's still cursed and on and on and on at the end it finally gets interesting uh for me post seance scene uh and then that's the end of the movie so what are you left with i uh, it's fun i i'm not gonna knock anybody for liking it wasn't my cup of tea uh so Watch it or don't. The choice, as always, is yours. Andrew. Wow. Uh, well, when I was watching this movie at home, uh, my wife was sitting next to me, not watching it, watching something on her phone. She happens to look up during the funeral scene, uh, <laughs> which it, it, which is a scene in which uh, somehow the corpse of this old lady winds up falling on top of <laughs> Allison Lohman. And there's just all this green putrid bile <laughs> coming out of her mouth, spilling onto this poor Embalming woman. fluid? I was like, what mess. is that? <laughs> right? I don't know. What, like, I'm not a mortician. I don't know. But she looks up at it and, and, and she's like, why would anybody want to watch this? And the cheeks over me and I am cackling. I beside myself. What I'm saying is view it. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. You want to come back on the show in two weeks, Andrew? That's the best review. Anyway. I mean, like divorcing it from my uh, my uh, my own prejudices on the film. That's just a great way to review the film. So view it to your review, even if it was a screw it. Patrick or Chris, you're both better at doing the spiel before we go down to the spoiler room. Which of you would like to take a turn this time? Hey, you. You like our show? You should follow it on social media. We're at Amoncast, E-H-M-O-N-Cast, on Facebook, Instagram, 
and the one site that used to be called Twitter and now is called Some Letter. It, you don't even have to. That site's going to be dead by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> Are we been, paying money for that? Fuck like, no. we, Is there a domain fee or something? <laughs> I hope no. not. No, we should probably just shut the our fucking, fucking haunted house that website. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyways, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at least. Um, also go to your speaking of dead sites, you can go to every <laughs> horror movie on Netflix.com. Oh. <laughs> My Maybe audio cut out fixed. for a sec. I didn't realize you guys were talking about Twitter first. Sorry, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's a haunted place too. Oh, you thought, oh, you thought I was talking about our website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we doubled down on that joke unintentionally. (laughs) But yeah, our website is pretty fucking broken. It's not broken enough, though, that you can't click on the merch store link and go uh, buy one of our t-shirts from which we get a whopping sum of like $1.50 a piece or something. But it's worth it to us to get Amon art out there in the world, get that uh, Amon name out there on people's bodies so that everyone can see you as a walking billboard for our podcast. Of course you guys gave this movie a view at the, the artwork on our shirt there is someone sitting in the chair and they're having <laughs> blood spewed all over Just them. Just yeah. right in the mouth. Yeah, viscosity. Yeah. That's a viscous t-shirt right there. <laughs> and lastly, go to your podcast provider of choice. Leave us a review. Uh, subscribe. Tell your friends. Share it around. Uh, we love to see those reviews in particular um, because we like to see your feedback and it helps people find the show when we have more reviews and uh, an excellent 4.5 star rating. That's what we're gunning for now. 4.5. No, 5, baby. We want 5. We're not well, it's for in- any less than it's that. It's incremental progress, Stephen. We've been at 4.4 for two years now, so I'll take <laughs> oh, 4.5 if we can get it. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, all that said, we're going to go down to the, the spoiler grave. We're going <laughs> to dig down deep during the storm of the century and spoil everything about Drag Me to Hell. All right, welcome back to the show. We are down here in the spoiler grave. It's raining. There's a corpse coming up over our shoulder. It's getting. It's hard to get out of here. There's a fucking mudslide coming over the edges of this grave. That was what. That was one of my favorite details of that scene. Sorry. That was awesome. Let's do those drive-in totals, though. We've got one dead cat. We've got one talking goat. We got eyeballs in the mouth. We've got embalming fluid in the mouth. We've got staple to the forehead, staple to the eye, staple back out of the eye. (laughs) This movie is not deep, you guys. So Andrew very astutely mentioned earlier that this uh, came out right around the time that the, the sort of subprime... Uh, housing loan collapse was happening, a lot, lots of stuff going on in the economy. This movie was actually written 10 years before that, though. Um, I think maybe these these themes of you know predatory lending or, or and banks being evil are just universal. Um, but that's just our end to a story that doesn't have a lot going on deep beneath the surface except a kind of fun, fun little examination of morality. I did have a lot of fun during this movie wondering, you know, whether whether uh, Alison Lohman's character really deserved what she got in the end. And I don't have a clear answer for that. No. Um, but 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 mostly this is just a series <laughs> of this is just a series of gags as as her curse gets increasingly uh, difficult to lift. And and I enjoyed that. I didn't expect anything more out of it. That was just enough fun 
for me. But to get to the specifics of the spoilers, we conducted this seance. Talking goat, amazing. Terrible CGI, but that was part of the charm for me. The goat looks ridiculous, and it's amazing. You see it for like two whole seconds, and that's it. What is it? What does it say? You you tricked me. <laughs> it calls her a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> um, the talking goat is the part that I remember most vividly from having seen this as a kid, other than the ending, um, because. I thought that was hilarious when I was a kid. For me as a kid, there was nothing better than seeing a goat come to life and start swearing at you and calling you a bitch. That was hilarious. That was very, very South Park. I oddly um, had forgotten completely about the goat, which is weird because like multiple, I mean, obviously there are some shocking visuals in this movie and two or three of them were pretty well burned into my brain, but that one didn't for some reason. It's a good example of Sam Raimi's humor that not not only does the goat become possessed, but the possession becomes something that's like tossed between all the different characters yeah. in that scene. Yeah. That it's just like you know it is a Looney Tunes gag. It just like establishes the property of demonic possession, and then just has it go willy nilly uh, all around mm-hmm. the room, including like the seance leader's son, who we've never seen before. Who I kept thinking like. I, well, it was Justin Long not able to make it this day because it seems like a natural role for him to be there. And when he gets possessed and he's calling out our hero for being the pork queen or whatever, it seemed like something that would make more sense coming from the boyfriend than oh, this character point. we've never seen before. <laughs> would have liked Justin Long to to get possessed by a demon in that, in that particular scene. <laughs> and maybe even turned into a walrus. <laughs> <laughs> I had this weird memory that that character was played by one of Sam Raimi's brothers hmm. when I first saw this. I, I I don't know why, but I mean he might he might as well be. He's up on you know doing this goofy little jig, like clearly hanging from wires. You know they barely even tried <laughs> to try to disguise this. It's just totally bonkers, totally Looney Tunes. Um, you know what do you expect from Sam Raimi taking a little vacation from big budget filmmaking? Yeah, it's fun enough for me. Uh. Chris, during the break, you mentioned that there were a couple of gags in this movie that you responded well to. I'm I'm curious what what those might be. My favorite gag was uh, she gets a bloody nose in the bank office, <laughs> and it's like th- things have already gone horribly wrong for her. And she's looking down. You know, you get the classic drips of blood on the on the paper, and we're like, oh well, this is bad enough. And her boss is over there asking an important question at the same time, and she's getting a phone call at the same time. But then when she looks up from the table, the blood explodes out of her nose like Kill Bill and <laughs> drenches the bank manager. <laughs> And that was great. And then the the, the bank manager has oh my god his preoccupation was like, did they, did, get, they get in my, my mouth? mouth? Did they get in my mouth? He also says this. I don't know why this made me laugh so hard, but he's he says, "What's with you?" <laughs> like as if she's doing this intentionally, you know? Or like, yeah. are you tr- are you trying to fuck up your chance of getting this job? I found all that stuff like about her getting this promotion to be so kind of cartoonish and funny too. Um, mm. She's up against a coworker who was hired like a month prior and is really really just sucking ass trying to become the assistant manager. He winds up stealing a, 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 a file of a loan that she's working on, a very you know big budget, uh, high number loan, uh, and selling it off to another bank. She, she, she does wind up actually 
seemingly getting rid of the curse and everything seems to be going well for her. She gets news that she's getting the promotion, right? Well, well, yeah, eventually. But so, I mean, the seance occurs and it's a disaster. And yeah. so then she's like, well, what do I do now? And then the, the East Asian, South Asian uh, mystic man uh, who listens to nothing but sitar music in his office <laughs> comes up to her and says, hey, there's something I didn't tell you about before because it's too fucked up. But if you take the cursed object that you've had in your pocket this whole time and you gift it to somebody, they'll get the curse and they'll be dragged to hell tomorrow and not you. But otherwise, you're going to get dragged to hell tomorrow. So you got to figure this out tonight. And then this is my favorite part of the movie. Now we actually have like a moral dilemma for our character who's until this point done nothing (laughs) but respond to viscosity being thrown at her. Um, and she's like in a Denny's and she's like trying to figure out who deserves this curse. That is a Chris Slat scene right there. Like I could read, I, I can just imagine your screenplay for this scene in particular. And I, I really liked, um, the waitress she interacts with who's, who's mm-hmm. mad that she's only getting coffee cause she needs tips. And she's like, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to give you a tip. You won't forget. <laughs> um, Isn't that the part where her Southern accent comes back out? <laughs> oh, does it? Oh, maybe. Oh. Yeah. Cause at the beginning, at the beginning, she's listening to tapes to try to, um, oh, yeah. you know, uh, purge her, purge her accent. Oh, right. Um, oh, and, that's what that was. Okay. And then in the diner scene, she's getting really upset with the waitress and the mask slips and she just, like goes back to like this this like pork pork queen drawl mm. that uh, you know <laughs> it's like remnant of her past. Yeah, that's that's even more impressive than what Julianne Moore did with that lisp and made a <laughs> That lisp was so creepy. Yeah. I know. Oh my god, we didn't even talk about yeah. that. Oh, um, god. And then like you know she sees she sees like a very old frail man who's on oxygen sitting at the table and it seems <laughs> to be like imply like oh she's going to give it to him because he's old he's going to die anyway forgetting that the the curse isn't that you're going to die tomorrow it's you're going to get dragged to hell and your soul ravished for all of eternity so it doesn't matter if you're young or old or sick or healthy it's it's but- it's big circle <laughs> energy <laughs> Yes, it is big circle energy. She's like weighing the pros and cons of all these people. And then she does what, you know, we would expect her to do. And she calls, this is like the best part of the movie. She calls in the, the her rival from the bank who yeah. fucked her over on this loan. And she's about to give him this thing. And then she's like, you know what? Like, this is too fucked up even to give you. And I really like that. And that's why I, I knee jerk said, no, she, she doesn't deserve to go to hell because I think the movie itself even says it doesn't matter how horrible you are. This is something that nobody deserves. Personally, maybe I would say this person should go to hell, but it's um, an impossible situation. And like, to me, that's where the fun lies in this. It's like, like whoever gets the curse really doesn't deserve it. Yeah, there's no one, at least there's no one you have access to tonight who deserves yeah. it. <laughs> if you had a month, maybe. Yeah. Um, but she luckily she has an out because the she's told by the mystic that actually she can go and return the, the curse to the corpse of the woman who gave it to her. So Because Romani Easy people out. sometimes place blessings on their dead, which is uh, an interesting loophole. Sure. I, I love the... Um, uh how in the grave first of all the smash cut to the grave digging 
is great. Mm-hmm. Very Sam Raimi. It's like the sp- the spooky music and she, you know, thunderclaps and she's like already like deep in the mm-hmm. ditch. And, and but it's also like it's just her working with the shovel, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like a perfectly dug <laughs> yeah. out rectangle yeah. around the coffin. And it's more than six feet deep. Like <laughs> it's like twelve. It's so the whole oh, yeah. the, that establishing shot of the um of the cemetery too is so like I hate to keep using the word cartoonish, but I don't know what else to use. It's like almost kind of like late period Tim Burton-y as well. Mm-hmm. There's like lots of like hills and weird looking tombstones. Like it's got personality. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's so often lacking in this kind of a like middle budget horror movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God bless. Yeah. But yeah, she jams it, jams the this uh, envelope with the button in it that's cursed into the dead woman's hand. Uh, the grave completely fills up with just completely floods, jams it into the woman's mouth. Um, you think she's drowned, um, and then she gets out. So somehow loses even more of her hair. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like the, the corpse. <laughs> the corpse. Has yeah, the corpse still has personality. Hair the corpse still has a little energy left in it. Yeah. What does she say? She's like, day. "That's the last of my hair that you're gonna get," or something like that. <laughs> so good. Such a great line. I'd be surprised if she didn't say bitch. Um But yeah, then everything's good. Perfect day. Perfect day. She gets she gets that promotion. Uh gets a new coat. Gets a new coat. She's gonna leave with her boyfriend to go to his parents' cabin on the ocean, and he's brought the ring. He's gonna ask the big question. Uh and it's all going well, and the train's coming up to the platform. And then he's like, oh, by the way, why'd you get a new coat? Because I have the button for your old one. Oh, my God. Because she thought she took the button in the envelope, but she actually took the collectible coin that she put in an envelope and gave to her boyfriend at the beginning of the movie. And then all their papers got mixed up when they had to break suddenly in the car and she picked up the wrong envelope. And so she gave the coin to the woman in the grave. And then the boyfriend still has the button. Holy fuck! Your your verbal reenactment of that scene is maybe more terrifying than how it plays out in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so she she recoils in horror and falls on the train tracks, and you think she's about to get run over by this train, but no, even worse, she gets dragged to hell. The end. (laughs) Fucking fiery pit opens up right under the train tracks, drags her down. Her face turns into some awesome ass, like Raiders Lost Ark looking skull face. The last moment you see her, it's phenomenal. But it doesn't cut to black on that. They say, wait a minute, let's go back to Justin Long. And the last shot is Justin Long horrified and crying, staring into the gravel because Sam Raimi knows like I know that Justin Long is a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say cut back to Justin Long cuz there's no greater horror than that. I love that this is truth in advertising. She got dragged yeah. to hell. Yeah. It's exactly what we were told was going to happen and she couldn't do anything to to reverse it. it the movie flattened in on itself and uh, I think I think it's pretty brilliant. I think the fact that it's so nasty, it's such a cruel way to dispose of this character mm-hmm. who probably didn't deserve it. That's why it sticks with us. That's why it's such a great little gut punch uh, that gets that gets people talking. And I think has kept has kept this movie from fading into obscurity. Not that it would have anyway, but but it's just it it's it it's the secret spice yeah. is this ending. 
it's a movie it's, that I often forget exists. And then like every five years, which I guess can't have been that many times since it came out in 2009, but I'm like, oh yeah, Sam Raimi like made a fun movie that one time after Spider-Man. And then I watch it and I, yeah, the, that, that ending is really the, really the, the sticking point though. You know, it just pops up in my mind every now and again. Like I can't believe that I'm, a major mainstream movie was able to get away with that, to call itself Drag Me to Hell and have its mostly likable protagonist actually drag to hell in the end. Um, it's like Kill Bill. You know, I said the blood was like Kill Bill. Yeah. Kill Bill tells you what you're going to get, and then just like this movie, there's that part where you're like, wait a minute, maybe she's not going to kill Bill. <laughs> What's the name of the movie? Of course she's going to kill Bill. Oh, it's fun. You know, I was thinking about this, about the way the movie ends, and like, this question of like, did she deserve it or not? And I think what I like about it so much is that the movie makes clear that it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, like if, if, if we lived in a universe where um, hell was just like something that vindictive people could like curse onto other people, then everybody would be being sent to hell for like personal slights. <laughs> right. Like there's no, it's, it's like, it's like a form of currency. Uh, and, it's not uh it's it's not something like like deserves got nothing to do with it you know she just she just found that lady on a bad day and gave her the worst news of her life yeah she's she just stepped in it and there's no going back <laughs> there's no way of correcting it at least not within three days with as few resources as she has and yeah it, and yet it's still somehow surprising in the end to me that that she yeah she's done for it, like in a way that it like made me the first time I saw this movie, like I think I probably cheered, like not at like her demise, but just at the audacity of of Sam Raimi. Patrick, do you remember the reaction in the theater at the end? I don't. No, I, I have I, very little memory of anything other than my own reaction to a few big moments, including this ending, which I did love. But yeah, I don't remember others' reactions to it. And I'm pretty sure we we had to have seen this together. In the Probably, we, yeah. I feel we, like I definitely saw about it in Monroe. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, th that's your movie, guys. Any any straight thoughts? Anything else you want to say about Drag Me to Hell? Has anybody seen this movie from the '50s that apparently inspired this movie called Night of the Demon? No, no, no. I've heard of it though. I don't know anything about it, but it came I just up, read, read that he was uh, inspired by it. I'll share this on the Discord, but that movie, I only know about that movie because there's a website called catsonfilm.net, and cat of the day number 89 on January 17th, 2013, was that poor little kitty from this movie, and <laughs> the writer is drawing some parallels to that movie, which I guess was based on an M.R. James story called Casting the Room. That kitty was so cute. So I'm going to have to check both of those out. That was a cute kitty. Oh, yeah, yeah. We forgot to mention that it got puked up by a possessed right. person during the seance. I guess that was a spoiler. <laughs> that should have been in your drive-in totals. One dead cat puked out of somebody's mouth. Too many too many drive-in totals to remember for this movie. Yeah. Um, well, let's put a fork in it. Uh, what are we watching next week, I believe? Um, who's we go to the wheel. To we're go wheel. Oh, yeah. fuck. We're back on the wheel because we're back on the normal format. Okay. We're back on Netflix and we are going to the wheel of death. So let's bring out our cyber wheel. We have every horror movie on Netflix loaded into this son of a bitch. And we are going to give it the old spin to figure out what we're watching. All right. Oh, it's spinning. It's spinning. <laughs> we are gonna watch Zom 100. 
Bucket um, list of the dead. I remember hearing about that when it came out, huh? but I forget what the the like gimmick is. An end oh. film from twenty twenty three. Well. Yeah, bullied by his boss, worked around the clock. He's nothing more than a corporate drone. Sounds familiar? <laughs> All it takes is a zombie outbreak for him to finally feel alive. Oh, right, it's a manga adaptation. That's why I know about it. Okay. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, All right. track record with those isn't great, so we'll see. Well, we'll yeah, see. Could this be a Gantz O situation, <laughs> or a hashtag Alive situation about the last the last end zombie film we watched? I think. Oh yeah. All right. Well, Andrew, it's been wonderful to finally have you on the show. This has been a blast. You boys as well. Fun to talk about what I think is becoming one of my favorite standalone horror movies that's unrelated to a franchise. Drag me to hell. But we will be watching. Oh, I, I, fuck, I closed the window. Zom 100? What was the rest of the Bucket list of the dead. We'll be watching Zom 100, Bucket List of the Dead, in two weeks. Um, Selfishly, I want you to go to my book club on the Discord. Check out Stephen's book club. We'll be reading a collection of horror short stories soon. Anything else anybody wants to plug before we uh, pull, pull the plug on this episode? Andrew, plug Radioactive one more time. Sure. Uh, I'll plug my podcast, Radioactive, The Father Coughlin Story, an eight-part immersive historical uh, epic that uh, delves into the life and times of an infamous uh, 1930s radio preacher from Detroit who was America's leading voice in in favor of fascism and anti-Semitism in the years leading up to World War II. So if you are a history buff, check it out. I know I will be. Well, for every horror movie on Netflix, I've been Stephen... I've been Chris. I'm Patrick. Thanks again, Andrew. You're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have you. Can't think of three guys I'd rather be dragged to hell with. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Creep it real. (laughs) 